Alright, let's open up our Bibles this morning to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. there, if you will stand, we'll read the Scriptures together. Ephesians chapter 4, we'll begin reading in verse 8. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens that He might fill all things. And He gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Do we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slate of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lay in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into Him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Let's pray. Father, we've said so much already in what we've read that we can't possibly comprehend it all. But Father, I pray You would feed our souls this morning. And I pray You would help us to grow in unity and love for Christ and love for one another that going into this new year we can be a blessing to each other and a witness to this world that Christianity is alive and well in the hearts of some. We thank You, Lord, for the glorious promises concerning the church and what You are still doing in this late hour. Lord, I ask for Your help. I ask for utterance, Lord, to speak forth Your mind on these issues. In Jesus' name, Amen. You may be seated. I mentioned last week that we're going to be taking a brief hiatus from the book of Romans. It's not necessarily because I want to, but I do think it is a good and prudent thing right now, partly because of the upcoming Christmas season and partly because of the upcoming New Year and uh, setting some directional things in order, which I I believe are uh, very, very critical and very vital to our spiritual growth. And so we're going to begin on that second note this morning as far as direction in the upcoming year, at least to some degree. And I'll tell you at the beginning, I really do not like preaching this type of message on a Sunday morning. And there's a lot of reasons for that. There's also a lot of reasons why I'm doing it and why I believe it's a good idea in this case. And so, uh, here we are. Now, we're going to be discussing many related topics It's difficult for me in something like this because a lot of what I say this morning, there's a whole lot more that could be said and should be said at some point, but this is not the time for it. So we're going to just be touching on some mountain peaks as we go through uh, various topics relating to our discussion this morning. Now as you hopefully know, if you've been here any length of time, we are committed to the exposition of the Word of God. 
The primary way to guard against the age in which we find ourselves and the continual insertion of human opinion and getting off on rabbit trails and side trails is the line by line and verse by verse teaching of the Word of God because that's how it was given to us. I hope you don't come here on Sunday morning to hear my opinion. And here's a news flash I don't come to hear yours. I hope we can say we come here to hear what saith the Lord and to adjust our hearts and minds and life to what God has said. You know, as uh, really this morning, the message I guess you could say is part historical, is part philosophical, the good way of that word I mean, part topical. But here's what it is if you'll bear with me. What this is, is the communication of a burden that's been growing on my heart for several months based on several principles that are found in the Scriptures rather than the strict exposition of one single passage like we normally do. And uh, we just read Ephesians chapter 4. We will be uh, getting back to that in a moment. You know, there's really very few areas in life where communication is not absolutely critical. I challenge you to find one where it doesn't matter. Human relationships, among other things, thrive on communication. And as a pastor, I'm going to make it my general practice, any type of ministry we do, I want to explain the heart behind what we're doing, not just to announce what it is that we're doing. If we're going to head into a new year with a Christ-honoring unity, rather than the satanic unity that's all around us, We have got to be together in our why as well as our what and when. All of those elements are absolutely critical. So the things I share this morning, I will tell you, are things I have prayed about and wrestled with and studied and researched and agonized over for several months. And I'm convinced they are both spiritually beneficial and necessary. Alright, number one, concerning Wednesday nights. We already discussed changing the service time to 6.30 versus 7. That was nixed because it didn't serve the most amount of people like 7 o'clock did. Okay, so we kept it at 7. We're going to keep it at 7. But we do want to be time conscious. Okay, so change number one on Wednesday nights, starting the second Wednesday, January 13th, second Wednesday of January. There's going to be no more testimony and song requests on Wednesdays. We're not totally doing away with it. I'll say more about that in a minute. It's really, I think, just too much with everything else on a Wednesday night. If we're going to do testimony, song requests, and then a message of any length, and then take prayer requests, and then have a concerted prayer time, uh, either something gets short-cut or short-changed, or we end up here way too long or something. And I do want to be time-conscious, especially for those driving long distance and uh, those that have young children. Um, The most important change, though, is going to be this. It's the emphasis. Now, let me explain what I mean. One of the burdens that's been growing in my heart for months is I know, I'm fully aware, every message I preach here as a general rule, there are all kinds of children sitting here that for the most part do not have the foggiest idea what I'm saying. I understand that. They sit here obediently. That's outstanding. But I know the average sermon is sort of like a jet plane flying over. You know, they see the smoke trail, but they're not necessarily on board the plane. 
And I look at uh, my children. Theological discussion is no stranger to my kids, believe me. Far before I was a pastor, I knew the Lord had called me that way for the last 15 years. These kind of things are commonplace. But I don't sit down with a six-year-old of mine and discuss why we don't believe in transubstantiation or consubstantiation, or which attributes of God are communicable versus incommunicable. Those are simply things that are above their level. Now, uh, I see, I look around, and I see the children are taught to sit still and listen with the adults. I'm all for that. Outstanding. May it continue. I see the children being taught up to a higher level, gradually. Fantastic. I don't want that to stop. But I want us to remember the necessity of line upon line and precept upon precept. You remember the discussion, 1 Corinthians 3? Paul tells the church in Corinth, I couldn't speak to you as spiritual, but carnal, even as unto babes. He told them they needed the milk of the Word and not the meat. Uh, Hebrews chapter 5, whoever the writer of the Hebrews was, said something similar there. He said, you ought to be teachers by now, but you have need that I feed you milk and not meat. Now I understand that specifically is talking to immature adult believers for the most part. But what it does show is the principle of teaching where people are at. And certainly that applies to children as well. I mean, we have little Mariah over here. No matter how much every morning I set a New York steak in front of her, until there's adequate development, she can't partake. She simply is not ready to eat. All of us are commanded to preach the gospel to every creature. Well, that's done at home. Fantastic. Please continue. It ought to be done at home, but pastors are also charged to feed the flock of God which is among them. I have a charge from the Lord of heaven and earth to whom I will give an account not to starve any particular part of the flock that sits here week after week. And last I checked, the flock contains little lambs as well as gray-bearded arthritic sheep and everything in the middle. Now there's a few possible ways we can address that. All right, One is we can bring all the teaching down to the level where everybody can understand. We'll just go the lowest common denominator. Well, once again, that's starving a contingency of the people who need the meat. And I hope there's many in that case sitting here right now. That, by the way, has become one of the hallmarks of contemporary Christendom. People show up by the thousands to watch Zeke with the Mohawk thrash his satanic music and then watch Reverend Cool Dude stand behind his little clear pulpitette and preach his 15 minutes of Gerber banana mush. I'm not trying to be unkind. But that's what's happening. You know, us becoming mighty in Bible doctrine is our main defense against the bubonic plague of apostasy that is sweeping throughout American Christendom. By the way, that's one of the difficulties of preaching that I hope you pray about. It's no easy thing to have something prepared to challenge the heart and the soul of an advanced believer and yet make it understandable and palatable to somebody who's far earlier in their Christian experience. That's no easy task, and I'm by no means perfect at that. But I do not think bringing all teaching down is a solution. All right, number two, a way it could be done is divide into age-segregated classes. Now, before anybody panics, hear me out. 
Believe me, I'm familiar with the arguments for and against. I am. I'm not going to even get into the discussion. Boiled down to its necessary elements, Sunday school, I don't believe, is a heresy or a pillar. It's simply one way it can be done. Are there abuses? Yes. Are there times it shouldn't be done? Yes. Has it been overdone in America? I think so. I think we've been over-compartmentalized to the point where families don't even see each other on Sundays half the time. I don't like that. Now I'm convinced that is not the most beneficial. I like the children present. More than that, I think it's a good and spiritually healthy thing. I like them learning to grow up to another level. I like them watching mom and dad sit and worship the Lord and listen. I like to hear children pray on Wednesday nights and take their burdens before the Lord. That's a precious thing and I don't think that should stop. So we're left with a third way to address it. And that's to have at least one service that's at least more geared towards instructing children at their level. And as I prayed through this, I do think Wednesday nights are the best time. So here's what we're going to begin doing. Wednesday nights, beginning the second Wednesday in January, are going to become more of a family Bible hour format. Now here's what I mean. It's a time to work on our overall comprehensive understanding of the Scriptures on a way that hopefully can be understood by all. Tell me something, grown-ups. How many of you can stand up on the spot and tell me the major theme of all 66 books of the Bible? How many of you can stand up and tell me all 66 books of the Bible? How many of you can stand up and tell me the major dispensational divisions in Scripture? And the major people in each one? And the responsibilities given to each one and how that changed? How many of you can stand up and tell me the major thematic elements that's addressed to the young in the first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs? But all these things are beneficial to know. And all of these things children can definitely understand. We can have time for memory verses as a church. On a lighter level, time to recognize birthdays and anniversaries. And what I'd really like to see is children more actively involved. Children can stand and read the Scriptures publicly. Children can lead in prayer. Children can stand up here and give their memory verses. I know one of the things we miss one of the most since we've been here. It was our habit up there that every week the children would stand up front and they would quote memory verses. Sometimes it was one line, sometimes it was an entire chapter. And so we as a family, we have a marker board in our living room and you know, we say, well, I've esteemed His Word more necessary than my daily food and it was a time that we would remember because we usually don't forget to eat. And so we work on that as a family. I personally am blessed by seeing children up here uh, doing memory verses. Where I'd like to begin is Gospel foundations beginning in the book of Genesis. Let me ask another question. How many of you right now can trace the gospel beginning in Genesis 2 and hit all the major high points necessary to understand what John meant when he said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Personally, I think that's the way evangelism when there's time should be done. I think every Christian should be able to answer that question in the affirmative. I think every family ought to be familiar with all of that and have their children going through that multiple times growing up. 
Let me tell you something that's far better than five verses out of Romans. Get the five verses out of Romans, but don't stop there. There's many more things that could be added. See, but it's not just for the children's sake. Now, what this doesn't mean, it doesn't mean we're doing away with prayer time. That's an important thing. I think we'll probably end up having more time for prayer. It doesn't mean this is exactly what we're going to do until Jesus returns. I don't want to get stuck in some rut forever or say we're never going to have a shift in emphasis. It doesn't mean the older generation has no need to be here. Whoever you are, if you're beyond the age of what I'm talking about, your your attendance of those services is both an example and an encouragement to all. And tell me, who's not blessed by watching the next generation hide the Word of God in their hearts and encourage them to do so? I hope everybody is. Because i got news for you. When the older generation's gone, what's left is younger. If we don't take an active part as a church in preparing that, Things are pretty bleak. Now, I'm going to do my best to have something for everybody. It'll be growth on my part, I know that. But I'm going to do my best to make it interesting to where uh, many people can be fed. Okay, again, so that's going to be Wednesday night, January 13th. This is going to start. Until then, Lord willing, we're going to press through at least the, the things I think the Lord had me emphasize in Leviticus until we get done. All right. Where we're mainly going this morning, though, is concerning Sundays. I'll talk about structure first, and then I'll get into things more than that. Okay? So beginning, we're going to begin Sunday evening services the second Sunday, also in January, January 10th. The third Sunday of the month is going to be fellowship meal following the morning service. On those Sundays, we will have no evening service. Okay? The third Sunday. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Okay? I understand both sides of it. Uh, You know, I'll tell you honestly, I've seen the service right after the fellowship meal. I've preached in several of those. Any of you who have... You probably don't like it. I mean, you have a service, you have a meal, you have another service. Here's what I found. Again, this observation, not being unkind. The children are grouchy. Their parents are grouchy. And five minutes into the message, everybody's falling asleep because they had too much bread pudding. If the point of hearing preaching is to actually get something out of it, then uh, that's probably not the right forum. Also, it leaves at least one evening free for other activities, which, which I think is useful. And the first Sunday of the month is going to be the communion service and the evening service beginning February 7th. Alright, now, leaving that behind for a minute. I have been around churches for enough years and observed people in enough settings and places to at least venture a bold assumption here And I hope you'll forgive me if I'm incorrect in your case. I would be willing to bet that based on what I just said, some of you already have decided you will be here on Sunday night, no matter what else I say. I mean, if you put a a mannequin here with his mouth open, you'd probably show up and sit here. Others may have decided just the opposite, without me saying anything else. But here's what I want to ask if either one of those is you. I want to ask for an objective hearing on both sides of that. Any direction we go, if we don't have good scriptural reasoning behind it, what's the point? Can we all heed Solomon's counsel 
to not answer a matter before we hear it. Because I will tell you this, I doubt I'm going to address this the way you expect me to. So let's at least try to listen. Will you do that much? First of all, let me give you some reasons why we are not doing this. Okay? We are not going this direction because other fundamental churches are doing it and they think we should. I could care less about that. I don't care. We are an autonomous assembly under the headship of Christ. I understand there's counsel that can be taken. But if that's the best argument somebody has, I'm not buying it. We're not going this way because you have nothing else you could be doing. I get the busyness routine. I'm raising six children, pastoring a church and running a business 2,500 miles away. I'm in the same boat of busyness as you are. We're not doing this because I don't have anything better to do. Can I just, can I just admit something candidly to you? For years, we have had Sunday evening services in other places. We've gotten used to that. I have, for my own sake, enjoyed a lot of things about not having one. I really have. If that was my main reason for discussing this, it would be decided the other way. But because what I like is not driving the train, we're having this discussion. I wonder how many people realize the time commitment it takes from the pastoral side of things to prepare any kind of messages with doctrinal depth to feed the Lord's people. I don't just roll out of bed prepared to speak. Believe me. And when we talk about something like this, I am committing to adding more time because I think it's necessary. We're not doing this because gas is cheap and we just love driving places as much as we can. We're not doing this because there's a specific scriptural mandate that says you have to. This one's mildly humorous. I actually read an article that said this. I I kid you not. I read an article from a pastor saying why he had Sunday evening service. And he said, "It's, it's amazing. No one's thought of this simple point. The church that has a Sunday evening service gets four extra offerings every month. Seriously. You know, I don't even want to comment on that. You know, I I just thought, you've got to be kidding me. I want to begin just with a historical perspective. And we're going to go through a lot of this quickly, so please stick with me. Very briefly, okay, it's difficult to pinpoint, but when did Sunday evening services actually begin? Now, there is at least some evidence that the very early church, after the completion of Scripture, did meet twice a time, twice on Sundays. There's at least one extant letter, for instance, uh, from Pliny the Younger, to Trajan the emperor. He was one of the imperial magistrates there. He was actually trying to stamp out Christianity in 112 AD, and he talked about the Christians that he was angry at. They were meeting before dawn on the first day of the week, and then they would go home, and, and then they would come back in the afternoon. Now, was that widespread? Was it localized? Don't know. We don't know. Now, of course, on the heels of that, and by the way, When Constantine took over so-called Christianity, that has never been Christianity. I read this all the time in historical documents. They want to go back to Constantine in the early days of Catholicism and talk about what the church, that that was never the church. 
That was an apostate whore from the beginning. It's always been that way. But you know, for a thousand years, Catholicism dominated the landscape and wrote the history books. For a thousand years, many groups we'll never know about were snuffed out, and they're only written in heaven's records. And of course, during that time, we do have fragments of information showing people that did and did not meet multiple times. But more recent history, the Puritans since the 1600s, uh, of course, they thought that the, Christ, the, the Sunday was a Christian Sabbath. It's not, okay? Well, that's not good reasoning. We don't agree with that. But since the 1600s, they did meet twice on Sundays. Uh, the Church of England did the same. Most Baptist churches have done it going back hundreds of years. The churches that came out of the Reformation, which by the way, we did not. The churches that came out of the Reformation did the same thing. Late in the 1800s, the North American Dutch began to have three services. They had two in Dutch and they had one in English in the middle for practical reasons. Finney and Moody in the 1800s, on the heels of the Second Great Awakening, they popularized the midweek service. And then late in the 1800s, most English churches were having multiple services. And there's a variety of reasons. Some was the availability of a preacher. You know, the guys coming on horseback 700 miles, you might want to schedule your service if you get stuck in a blizzard a little bit differently, right? And some, it was the addition of gas lamps and electricity. Some was evangelism. Here's a weird one. Do you know in 19th century England, London, Metropolitan Tabernacle where Spurgeon preached. Do you know in those days if a visitor came on Sunday, you know what he came? You know when he came? He came Sunday night. Visitors didn't come Sunday morning. They just didn't. In fact, what Spurgeon did was ask many of his members to stay home on Sunday night so that there would be a seat for the lost who were coming to hear. You talk about a certain cultural dynamic. My, how things have changed. You know, people are too busy watching football now to go visiting churches on Sunday nights for the most part. But in the early 1900s, that pattern slowly began to decline, and there were various reasons. And uh, by the mid-1990s, most had abandoned multiple services. And nowadays, it's primarily the church's coined conservative or fundamental that carry on the practice. In fact, according to the statistician Tom Rayner, less than 5% of churches still have a Sunday evening service. And generally, there's eight reasons why. I'm going to give them to you just, just primarily without comment. Some, it's just practical reasons. Okay, like what happened here? Several years ago, this church decided not to have a Sunday evening service for practical reasons. And it was a good thing. I think that was a good line of reasoning at the time. Some would cite loss of interest. You know, people just stop coming. Some would say it's too much hassle and effort to come twice. It just, they just didn't want to do it. Some would say longer drive times. People just statistically live farther away from the church building now. Some would say other activities, favorite television program and the like. Some would say it's too much for the pastor to prepare another sermon with all of his other duties. And by the way, I'm not making these up. I have read on this extensively for and against. Some have gone the way of small groups, other focused teaching sessions. And probably the number one reason is family time. Family time. Now, is there any scriptural commentary on that? One way or another. And of course, that would come in the form of example or specific command or principles to apply. You know, when we look at the apostolic and early church example, 
It's obvious they met at a minimum on the first day of the week. Obvious, inarguable. But beyond that, you would be hard-pressed to find binding regulation of frequency of services or order. Some say, well, Christ, Christ rose from the grave early in the morning, so we're going to meet early in the morning for the same reason. Acts chapter 20, they gathered the first day of the week at Troas, and you remember the sermon because a guy fell down and died in the middle of it. Eutychus. Paul preached till after midnight. Now, did they start the service in the morning and go all day? Did he preach a 14-hour message? Did they begin in the afternoon or evening? We're not told. But they were there in the evening having a preaching service that went on so long that a young man fell asleep and fell out of the window and died. They were human, weren't they? In fact, there's a good reason to hold the Lord's Supper communion in the evening. I don't believe there's a specific command given on that timing. I found it interesting in reading various articles or some people that they want to make an issue about having communion at night. Tell me something. The, the last supper, what was it? Was it the last breakfast or the last supper in John 13? When Judas betrayed Christ and he went out from that meal, what does it say it was? Night. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul is talking about the order of communion to the church at Corinth, and he makes a specific point that the Lord Jesus, the same what? Night in which He was betrayed. So someone could make a case for that. Okay? But here's my point. There's no command specifically how often to meet or the exact order. In other words, it's wrong to judge any New Testament assembly strictly on time or frequency or order of service. Church down the road adds a service. Church over here drops one. That doesn't necessarily mean they're wrong. Let me tell you what is important though. The reasoning behind what they do. Secondly, church history isn't binding. It varies greatly. So what we're left with is a multitude of principles to determine why we do what we do. Now this could go on quite a while. I'm going to try to make this brief, but here's where I ask, stick with me. Because as I communicate my reasoning for going this direction, there's several building blocks, and I really, I really want us to understand this. First of all, we need to take note of the prominence of the local church in the New Testament. There's only one that's preeminent, and His name is Christ. But any honest reading and study of the New Testament, you cannot deny the local church occupies a very prominent place in the life of the Christian. It's all over the place. Why do I say local? Well, the term ekklesia, the Greek word, appears 115 times in the New Testament. Overwhelmingly, it refers to the local, recognizable, called out assembly of the Lord's people. And you look at the functionality of the church, you look at the carrying out of the ordinances, or the carrying out of church discipline, or the various commands and precepts given, and it has to be speaking of local. You cannot carry out church discipline in the universal church. It doesn't work. So the, the, the emphasis is deniably, undeniably local. Why do I say prominent? Think of the promises given to the church. Matthew 16, Christ says, Upon this rock, speaking of Peter's confession, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. 
That's one of the few times the universal church is in view in the use of that word. We know that because he founded it on the apostles and 2,000 years later here we are and I don't know of anyone who's lived 2,000 years so far. But how that's been fulfilled is through the proliferation of local churches throughout the last two millennia. Think of some of the names used to describe a church. Church is God's spiritual building. It's built upon the chief cornerstone and foundation of the apostles. And of course, that's in keeping with the statement of Christ. What else is the church called? The bride of Christ. That, that needs very little comment to explain how important that is. The church is called the body of Christ. That means you and I are the entity left behind to carry on the work that Christ has left to be done underneath His headship. <coughs> you remember the description given in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 15? He tells Timothy, I'm writing this so you know how to behave yourself in the, the house of God, which is the church of the living God. Obviously, it's not a building. It's talking about the people. But then he calls the local church the pillar and ground of the truth. I wish I could stop right here and preach a topical message just on that one passage. Amazing. But just briefly, the pillar, he's using the, the analogy of the large temple that was there in the town with its many pillars ornately carved supporting it. See, a pillar was that which held something up to view and supported it. And then a ground was a foundation because the church is founded on a rock, because it's founded on Christ, it cannot be moved. And he's saying, God has put the body of Christ, the local church on earth, to hold up and bring emphasis to the truth and to function as a bedrock in society. Tell me something, what is the hope of Helena, Montana? What is it? It's Christ, I hope you say. Who's His body? You think the LDS church is going to spread light? No. The local church, as it's laid out in the Scriptures, is His body. And history has borne that out. Who is it that's preserved the Scriptures over the years? Who is it that's bled and died to defend the truth over the years? Who is it that's earnestly contended for the faith over the years? It's been generation upon generation of local church founded upon that same rock that we still have today. It's borne out in the New Testament books. Tell me something. Who are most of the New Testament books written to? Churches. They're written to churches. Here's another application. Who is family counsel in the Bible written to? It's written to churches. Here's one application we can make from that. The church does not compete with the family. The church does not supplant the family. The church does not replace the family. The church is not under the family. The church is to assist in God's work at building up the family. I fear many today have this misnomer in their heads that the church and the family are pitted against each other. That's a man-made dichotomy. It's not accurate. Duties do not conflict in the spiritual realm. The local church is one of the primary means of building up families. 
Even the book of Revelation. The last book in the New Testament, who's it written to? It's written to seven literal local assemblies, all of whose locations can be found today. In fact, when that ends, the book of Revelation, it's the Spirit and the Bride saying, Come! It's them, the church, that's beckoning people in to come to the feast. Alright, now what's the mission of the church? Let's say somebody stops you on the street. What church do you attend on Sunday? And you tell them, why? Why? What is the point for gathering together? I do hope all of us can answer that. I really do. Now we could say, well, it's to bring glory to God. Everything is under that umbrella. Okay, true statement, right? For thy pleasure they are and were created. But that's still not a complete answer, isn't it? How is that to be done? Well, that includes many elements. It includes worship. It includes prayer. It includes the ordinances. Have you ever thought, though, how the Great Commission is such an umbrella for all of this stuff? You think of the Great Commission, what do you think of? Well, evangelism. That's part of it. That's part of it. You compare Acts 1. Christ descends. He says... You shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, and Judea, and Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth. Matthew 28. Preach the gospel to every creature, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then what? Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. But that's not an overnight process. So in other words, wrapped up in the great commission for which the church receives power is the idea of preaching the gospel, building up disciples, so long as this current age remains. We have the promise of Christ to be with us. Alright, now, if you're in Ephesians 4, let's begin in Ephesians 4. There's similar thoughts here. What's the purpose of the church? We're going to pick up in verse 12. Okay? Here's some concrete statements on what the church is supposed to do and be. Verse 12, it's for the perfecting of the saints. Okay, That's to bring the individual believers to completion. It's for the work of the ministry. That's to build people up and train them and give opportunity to minister to the lost as well as to the saints. For the edifying of the body of Christ. That's the building up of the church as a corporate body. Till we all come, what's the result? The unity of the faith, knowledge of the Son of God, perfection in Christ's likeness, and then verse 14, that we be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. So all of these things lead, among other things, to doctrinal stability. Sadly, there's a great... You know, it's becoming more and more popular today that any dogmatism in the spiritual realm is always a sign of pride. You can't stand for anything. It's apparently a mark of humility to never know what you believe and why and to take everybody's word for everything and to read every website and be moved by it and that's just humble. According to this, to be carried about by every wind of doctrine constantly is a mark of childishness and not maturity. It's a big difference doesn't mean we shouldn't be approachable. But it does mean as we grow in Christ, there's going to be less and less things that throw us all over the place because we are anchored on a rock. 
Now, specifically, how was that accomplished? The things we just read. Now we began back in verse 8 where Christ ascended on high, led captivity captive. And in order to build His church, what did He do? Verse 11, He gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. For the carrying out of this work, God has ordained four offices to help in this building process. Now two of them, apostle and prophet, have passed away with the completion of the Scriptures. Both of those are a sermon in and of themselves to describe that. We're not going to do it. But there's two remaining. There's the evangelist. He is itinerant. There's the pastor slash teacher, which is resident. And God specifically says He has put these callings there to accomplish the things that are listed further on in this passage. Conversely, tell me, what happens when we neglect the means of our spiritual growth. Here's what I think is a tragedy today. A lot of the Lord's people view the things that God says relating to our sanctification as a buffet table. Well, I like that one. Well, that one tastes good. I think I'll try that. I don't want any of that. Tell me, does God say anything for the joy of hearing Himself speak? No, He absolutely does not. Now, how is that to be accomplished? How how does an evangelist and a pastor possibly succeed in the work of building up the Lord's people? Well, there's several principles we can pull. You remember the statement, 1 Timothy 5.17. He's talking about pastors in the church. And he talks about those who labor in the Word and in doctrine. You know, it's interesting, the word labor chosen there, there's a lot of Greek words for labor, but the one the Holy Spirit specifically chooses means to labor to the point of exhaustion. The pastor is to be one who labors to the point of exhaustion in the Scriptures so that he can preach the Word, reprove, rebuke, exhort, with all long-suffering and doctrine. In fact, in that same passage, that's the reason given why the church has historically had pastoral support. Believe me, you, you know full well that was not a condition of me coming here. It wasn't. But the point he's making in that passage is God has called certain ones to labor in the Scriptures so that they can be prepared to feed the Lord's people and they have to have the freedom to do it. That's what was behind the deacons in Acts 6. Why were the deacons called in Acts 6? So that those preaching could give themselves to, the, to prayer and the ministry of the Word. That was why. Now several things that included. Number one, it includes, it includes a balanced diet. Tell me something. How easy is it to preach the whole counsel of God? How easy? JJ, let's say I move here to Helena. I give you a map, or you give me a map, and it's your job to teach me to learn the city. How is that done? Is it done by a magnifying glass on one particular neighborhood and learning every street and house? And No. Is it done by only a bird's eye and comprehensive view? No, it's probably going to be a combination of comprehensive and learning the specific areas that are most important. The downtown area, the important neighborhoods, 
we've been in an important neighborhood in the book of Romans for some time. Let me illustrate what I mean. Five months ago yesterday, I started the book of Romans. We are already one quarter of the way through the book. You do the math. If that continues, we will be finished with Romans sometime in the spring of 2017. Now, I think that's an important emphasis. I think that's one neighborhood we need, and that's why we're there. But my point is, to continue only with that, there's so much of the whole counsel of God we're missing. By the way, if I were to go through the whole Scriptures at that pace, it would take me just shy of 100 years to go through those 31,000 plus verses. I look at that and what's going on, and I think, oh boy, There's a lot to cover besides that. Thirdly, from the pastoral perspective, there has to be a recognition of the times that we live in. And here's where I really ask you to please listen to what I'm saying. I don't have a lot of time to develop this in depth like I'd like to. But one of the major thematic elements all through the New Testament, warnings given to the church, concerns the subject of apostasy. Apostasy is the falling away, in large part from within the ranks of Christendom, that's going to get progressively worse as the day draws on, culminating in the rise of the Antichrist. When Christ gave His kingdom parables, Matthew 13... He talked about the mustard seed growing into a tree and uh, being filled with birds. The the symbolism is very plain if you trace that one through the other parables. He was talking about this abnormal growth that's going to result in the explosion of so-called Christendom and it's going to be filled with false teachers. And that's exactly what most of the New Testament writers talked about. Consider a few passages. 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter says he'd like you to know this first. There's going to come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts, saying, where is the promise of His coming? For all things continue as they were since the beginning of the creation. And he says this they're willingly ignorant of. It means they're dumb on purpose. Concerning what? You go through that passage, the return of Christ the biblical account of creation by the Word of God, the biblical account of the flood, and the coming judgment by fire. Peter says in the last days, you're going to see an explosion of people denying those four things. 1 Timothy chapter 4, The Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some should depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. And then he gives a couple, forbidding to marry, commanding to abstain from meats. Okay, so number two, there's going to be a proliferation of satanic doctrine and deception. Number three, 1 Timothy chapter 3. This know also in the last days. Perilous times shall come. The word perilous means heavy and grievous and nearly impossible to deal with. 
and he doesn't describe persecution. What he describes is a world scene where people are lovers of their own selves and covetous and boasters and proud and blasphemers and disobedient to parents and unthankful and unholy without natural affection, truce breakers and false accusers and despisers of those that are good. Traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. And what's the capstone? Having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. Number three, there's going to be an explosion within professing Christendom. Mass amounts of people, oh, I love Jesus, I'm a believer, and they do not have a life to back it up. Number four, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. People can't stand sound teaching. After their own lust, they're going to heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. They're going to fill the churches with mega church pastors who tell them what they want to hear. They'll turn away their ears from the truth. They'll be turned to fables. And they'll believe in fairy tales. Tell me something. Is that happening today? Yes or no? Is that happening today? And believe me, this is a topic we could go into far more, but we're going we're gonna to stop there. But what's the antidote? It's not panic. It's not fatalism. It's not move out to East Montana and buy 50 acres and bury a bus and go down and wait for the Holocaust. You know, there's people that do that. It's not compromise. 2 Timothy 4. In the middle of all this, when Timothy as a pastor is warned, what's he told? Here's his antidote. It's not to go picket the state capitol. It's to preach the word. The antidote to that apostasy from the pastoral perspective is preach the word. 1 Timothy 4.16, on the heels of another warning about apostasy, here's what Timothy's told. Take heed unto thyself. That means maintain your own walk with God and unto the doctrine and continue in them. What's going to happen? In doing this, thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. The salvation talked about there is not salvation from your sins. He's not telling Timothy, make sure to preach because that will be sure to save your soul. Context, context, context. He's saying, Timothy, by you maintaining your walk with the Lord and you laboring fervently in doctrine and you preaching the Word, the end result is you save yourself from going off into apostasy and you save those that hear you from going the same way. In keeping with that idea, Hebrews 10.25. There's a verse that's sure to make some nod and some shake their head, right? But I just want to take some applications from it. Hebrews 10.25. The Hebrew Christians are told not to forsake the assembling of themselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. Here's what that verse is not saying. It's not saying if you ever miss a church service, you deserve to have your toenails ripped out with needle-nose pliers. Okay, seriously, some people treat it that way. It's not saying there's some mandate on service times that you have to be here, 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 and here, or God's going to curse you. What that verse is talking about, though, is not an event, but an attitude. 
Here's some principles we can take. First of all, what does it mean to assemble ourselves together? The word, you know, it's a compound Greek word. You know what it means? It means a complete collection. This isn't Billy Ray and Sally Sue who want to meet for donuts with you. This is talking about the corporate recognized assembly of the local church that the Lord has ordained. Unmistakably. There is a tendency, for whatever reason, maybe our fallen flesh, to back off in that. And he exhorts these people, do not give in to that, even though there's always going to be a contingency that does it. The manner of some is. But how do you... What's the antidote? But what? Exhorting one. Anybody remember what exhort means? To exhort means to motivate to action with a view to the future. In other words, exhortation is, for instance, telling you, don't forget Christ is returning, forsake your sins, live a holy life, look to the future because the time is short. That's an exhortation. By the way, that's exactly what Timothy's told to do as part of that. And look what it says. As you see the day approaching, the end of the age, what's our response? So much more. Do we really need less Bible instruction in this age? Do we need less fellowship? Do we need less exhortation? I mean, do all of you wake up every morning, just sort of float into the kitchen on a spiritual high plane, quoting Scripture, flesh locked down in the basement, don't have any problems with sin? Do you see the day approaching? Yes or no? I hope we do. By the way, that is borne out in principles everywhere. Our response to the coming apostasy and the explosion around us is an increase in our spiritual duties, whatever those are. It ought to make us more prayerful. It ought to make us more watchful. That means stay awake because it's high time to wake out of sleep because now is your salvation nearer than when you believed. Our culture is like the enchanted forest of Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. That's what is happening to American Christianity across the board. Apostasy is happening here. Snoring is happening here. And it's going off the shelf. Now back to those objections. Some said they don't like a Sunday service. There's just a loss of interest. People just quit coming. Let me ask you a question. If the mark of the age is that people can't stand sound doctrine, is it any surprise that they wouldn't want to come here twice? No, it's really not. I find it amazing. I hope you're familiar with neo-fundamentalism. Okay, that's these cutting-edge younger guys within the ranks of so-called fundamentalism. You know the guys they want to take J. Frank Norris and throw him in a blender with Rick Warren? And come up with a, a smoothie for all fundamentalists where anything goes and nobody's offended. We love the world, we carry a King James Bible. Aren't we culturally relevant? 
the same arguments they are using, the same cutting edge thinking you hear these guys spout in their blog, which is a good name for it, it's regurgitation of what all the major denominations did 90 years ago. It's the same line of thinking and the same reason. Tell me something. What has happened to Methodism? What happened? What's happened to Anglicanism? I'm not saying we ever agreed with them perfectly, but you can't deny there was a day when you walked into a free Methodist church and you heard the gospel of Christ and you heard that you should be separated from the world. Well, the cutting-edge young guys got a hold of it, you see. And their brilliant arguments took over. And oh my, hasn't that helped them? Someone says, well, it's too much hassle and effort. I understand what it takes to get children ready. Can I ask an honest question, though? When you meet the redeemed saints in heaven who lost their head defending this book, who were drowned in rivers for defending baptism, who lived out their life in catacombs and where children died because they didn't even have fresh air to breathe because their parents would not compromise because they were forced to live underground. Are you going to look at that collection of saints and say, boy, it was really a chore to live for Christ in 21st century America. You know, that climate-conditioned car, and you know, ah, that was really difficult. You know, one time my blinker stopped working. I'm not trying to be unkind, but I'm just saying, can we put this in a historical perspective? Is there no cost to Christian discipleship anymore? Is there? Someone says, well, they're watching a television program. I'm not even going to comment on that. One pastor says, well, it's too much to prepare another sermon. I understand that, believe me. But let me tell you something. Two things. I do not take where God has placed me lightly. And I can tell you there are times I am terrified to stand up here. Do you know why? Because every time I stand before you and open this book, there is a corresponding day of judgment when the flaming eyes of the Messiah are going to look at me. <laughs> you think I like talking about pastoral role and authority, shame on you for judging motives of the heart. This has nothing to do with me. Nothing. Small groups. That's one way to do it. I don't like dividing up the body that way. Family time. In my opinion, honestly, that's the most valid of these arguments. I hear somebody say they're, they're neglecting something for sake of the family. Brother, listen, I applaud that. I think that's wonderful. I think that's an emphasis that's needed in this generation. To retain the hearts of the children is necessary. But can I ask some honest questions? Is that really the only opportunity for family time? Is Christ preeminent and the local church for Christ's sake prominent or is something else in the middle? 
knowing that duties, spiritual duties, never conflict, are there some rearranging of priorities that some of us can do to meet all of our obligations instead of pitting one against another? We can't do that. What's the most beneficial? Look, we've gotten together with most of you. I enjoy it. I enjoy it. One of my favorite things to do is lose to my brother-in-law ping pong. I don't ever win. That's why it has to be my favorite to lose. (laughs) But here's what I've observed, honestly. And please understand what I'm saying. Please listen to what I'm saying. We've been to a lot of places. We have a lot of dear friends with different views on this. We know a lot of families who would not go to a Sunday evening service and they'll have another family over for family time on that evening. Can I ask some honest questions? Here's what generally happens. The men kind of gather and they talk about man stuff. The ladies, they gather and talk about lady stuff. The young people there, who knows what they're doing, capture the flag or something burning off energy. Those things aren't bad. But can I pose an honest question? What is more spiritually beneficial knowing the day is approaching and the age we live in and the proliferation of satanic doctrines and widespread hatred of the Bible in our own flesh is a ping-pong paddle more valuable or is it the systematic doctrinal teaching of the Word of God that this generation characteristically hates? How much exhortation really goes on? How much, brethren, let's get our nose in the Scriptures and let me encourage you to live a godly life and forsake the ramblings of your flesh. I can't answer that for you. I'm just asking the question. Our children need time, love, and attention. They need family time. No question. Believe me, I'm the last one to want to take that away. But the pillar and ground of the truth, according to the Holy Spirit of God, It's not web pages. It's not the religious bookstore. It's not the radio station. Do you know there are people, writers in Christendom, that say the local church is going away, and someday we're just going to have a few mega church pastors who are so talented, they're just going to put everyone else out of business. And we'll gather at our meetings all over the country and watch these guys on screens. I choose to believe that a sovereign God who instituted the local church knew all about 21st century America. It is not about me. It is not about you. It is not that I'm better or you're worse or you're better than I'm worse. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with obedience to what God has said and understanding where we find ourselves at our place in history. We're almost done, I promise. I appreciate your patience, I do. Let me just bring up one quick case study. A church I've never been to. I've heard a lot about it and so have you. It's called the church at Ephesus. It was founded by Paul in his missionary journeys. You know in Acts chapter 20, the last time, a tearful gathering, he gathers together the elders of the church at Ephesus and he tells them to take heed unto themselves over which the end of the flock, over which the Holy Ghost has made them overseers. And then he warns them that after his departure, grievous wolves are going to enter in, false teachers, false philosophies, false doctrines are going to assault that church. 
And he's telling these men who are leaders in the church, you deal with it. Fast forward a few years. Paul writes to Timothy, sends him to the same church at Ephesus. He tells Timothy, you charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Timothy, you silence the mouth of false teachers. Timothy, there's things that are taught there that have to stop. He tells Timothy the same thing. Take heed unto yourself and to God's flock. Right? Fast forward to the book of Revelation. Chapter 2, first three verses. First church mentioned, church at Ephesus. Decades down the road. They were lacking in some things. But do you remember what they were commended for? That you were able to try those which say they are apostles and are not. And you found them liars. And Christ is saying, well done church at Ephesus because you are doctrinally sound enough to be able to recognize false teachers and chuck them out of the church. Listen, if Jesus commends that, you and I have no business not commending Him. That was a result of the foresight given back there and combating the rise of false teaching the way God intended. Friends, there's no question, and I hope you can see it, we are living unquestionably in the most spiritually deceptive and dangerous times in the history of the church. Not because of persecution. It's because the hour is very late. It's because of satanic teaching. It's because of widespread rejection of the truth. It's because of the advent of the Christian rock crowd and the throwing doctrine out the window. It's because of the rise of the megachurch and this uh, saying we're Christian and denying the power thereof. It's because of the advent of the internet and any crackpot can write some professional looking website and you carry it around in your pocket. Listen, the deception is everywhere. Do we recognize the day approaching? Yes or no? Yes or no? Here's my point. I'm convinced, no matter what any of you think, I am unable to instruct the Lord's people as a pastor in the whole counsel of God with a balanced spiritual diet in a way that will effectively combat the increasing onslaught of spiritual deception if all I have is Sunday morning and a different emphasis on Wednesday night. And I tell you truly, as I lay aside my personal preferences and what I think I like, and how much I like a cup of coffee on the back deck and to not think about theology sometimes on Sunday night. I have a meeting coming up with the Son of God and where I'm going to be called out on the carpet before the flaming eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ to give an account to how I fed His body and cared for His bride. And with that in view, I've got to do something about it. That is why that is why we're adding another service. You know, our growth as the body of Christ takes many elements. A lot. But regarding the things we've just discussed, on the pastoral side, there has to be a determination not to be a society guy. Not to show up to cut the ribbon at the beekeeper's guild and, and get caught up in all sorts of lesser issues. Let me tell you something. I am not a recluse by nature. 
But the weight the Lord's placed on me has compelled me. The first and best hours of my week, for the most part, I'm inaccessible. Because I have responsibility before the Lord Jesus Christ. And feeding the flock of God is a numero uno on that list. And everything else outside of my family, I hope you know what I mean by that, but in regards to ministry duties, everything else has to wait unless it's an emergency or something else. Secondly, on the pastoral side, there has to be the willingness to teach the whole counsel of God. Yes, even those things that are uncomfortable and difficult and unpopular and negative. And no, I don't like teaching those things, but I must. But that's part of it. There has to be a determination on the part of the Lord's people to recognize what's going on around us. And not because of some specific scriptural mandate of service times, but to respond in the way that God has laid out before us. Here's what I'm asking for us as a people of God. It's not some slavish devotion to a list of service times because after all, that makes us spiritual. No, it doesn't. I'm asking us if we can commit that by the grace of God, we're not going to be deceived. We're going to be informed on the age we live in. We're going to be zealous to rescue others from this fire. And we're going to do so by the grace of God and walking in obedience to the principles that He's laid out for us. Brethren, I'm firmly convinced it doesn't have to be Sunday night, but the godly response to what we're seeing is not needing less. The apostasy has followed that in every single group. Whether it's a cause or effect, it doesn't matter to me, but it can't be denied. If we're going to see clearly in these days, we'd better have scriptural lenses. And if you think any one of us is immune to that, you're dead wrong. What do you think it's going to be? Look at the exponential rise of apostasy in 15 years. Where are your children going to be in 20 years from now? I tell you truly, I've seen dear, precious families to me who seemingly, I looked, they did everything right. But the one thing they didn't do is prepare their children to be discerning. And those children got involved in doctrinal areas they should have known about, but they were never taught. Let's pray. Father, I pray You can do something good out of this seeming hodgepodge, but Father, I sure hope. Lord, I hope You've been glorified by what's happened this morning. Lord, I pray for my part that where I'm wrong, you would correct me. But yet as feeble and pathetic as I am, I must stand. And I pray you teach me evermore to lean hard upon you. But I pray you build us as a church in a God-honoring unity to exhort one another, to encourage one another, to recognize where we live in history. 
and how prone to deception we are. Or the leaven is sown everywhere. A little leaven leavens the whole lump, whether it's in our mind or a church or a country. Father, help us as we live in these perilous times. In Jesus' name, amen.